we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can go wherever our conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Mr. Jan Yakilek. Mr. Yakilek is, is senior editor and host of the Epoch Times, where he has worked for 18 years. Mr. Yakilek did his undergraduate work at the University of British Columbia and received a Master of Science degree from the University of Alberta. From 2007 to 2009, he was a representative in Poland for the International Society for Human Rights. Jan says of himself, over the years, I've been a teacher, journalist, project manager, biologist, guide, a producer in all sorts of capacities, and a general student of life. And I would add to that, that uh, in my opinion, he's one of the most widely read and critically thinking people that I've known. So I'm really excited to be doing this interview. Jan, why don't we start? What's been on your mind lately? Well, Harvey, first of all, um, thank you so much for having me here. And I'm honestly deeply humbled by by your kind words here because I, I feel, you know, you're one of the people that I've really learned quite a bit from over the past few years. If, if there's if there's one thing that's been a huge silver lining of the last several years, it's been that I've gotten to meet all sorts of unlikely people that I never would have crossed paths with and become friends and and just really kind of expand my own thinking. Um, and, and you've been a huge part of that for me. So thank you for that. And thank you. I th- I feel exactly the same way that we lost some friends in the process, but we've gained some remarkable new ones. Well, um, <laughs> you know, what, what what's what's on my mind, uh, Harvey, uh, is these days, the, most of all, is, uh, as you know, some of my uh, viewers uh, over at American Thought Leaders uh, at the Epoch Times will, will know because it comes up in, you know, many, many of, of my interviews is this is this idea that that as human beings, some of us in particular are very, very susceptible to being nudged, to, to being propagandized, to accepting sometimes even, you know, preposterous assertions as if they were true. And, and that we function in a society where um, some people just believe things that on the face of it are, are, are just untrue. And we have to kind of navigate that as a society somehow with people who, who may even, you know, seemingly, at least for the time being, deeply believe in something that's either very destructive or um, very counterproductive, or just 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 simply false, and you can you can turn blue in the face saying, "Hey, look, this is just isn't true." These are <laughs> I, I've studied the issue closely. That the, the, there's some basic realities here that you need to know, and and the person won't listen, and that is to me a very difficult problem that I don't know how to solve. Everything that that I've done, all the work I've done over the past. I would even say five to seven years has kind of led to this point where I'm staring uh, out into the world and thinking to myself, how do we deal with that? Well, you know, I think that at least at the start, we're talking 
to some degree about emotional intelligence versus academic or intellectual or or other kinds of intelligence and uh i don't know i think peter salve has created a part of his early work uh, the tests and measurements of emotional intelligence but it's not something that we generally recognize in day-to-day -day life um, maybe when we fail at it we can recognize it but but by and large we have uh, a worldview of well at least those of us who are still in, in the meritocracy kind of thinking um that that meritocracy works on intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence may or may not play into that and it's astonishing to me i think your astonishment i share completely that people can believe in so many irrational things when there is empirical evidence that contradicts them it's one thing to believe in religious values and so on that are orthogonal perpendicular to one's empirical observations in life and and scientific understandings of life because obviously if you have a belief that can be addressed by rational observation and measurement then the belief would be properly modified adjusted to comply with or be supported by what we can measure and observe in life it doesn't make sense to believe in things that you can measure to be untrue and but that's what you're talking about here that these are belief systems that people have that there's empirical evidence of their failure the, their lack of truth and yet people believe them in spite of that yeah uh and and you know frankly it's also uh the the other part to this is frankly that i realize that myself i had accepted certain things uh as just kind of truth like i'll i'll use this assertion but um for example just this the broad based general assertion for example vaccines are safe and effective right now of course that that is a silly silly assertion, right? How, how could how could that be? Of course, some of them are going to be more safe, some of them will be more effective. Some of them will be very hot, as they say, you know, have a lot of harms and so forth. Maybe they'll be pulled off the market. But to have a blanket statement like that, right? Or just, you know, vaccines don't cause autism. The reason I'm mentioning these things is that in our society, I mean, that's, this is one of these things that I kind of grew up with, right? And uh, you just kind of assumed it was just true, but it took quite a bit for me to really think about that <laughs> about those assertions is, is this does this really make sense hey wait a sec uh, uh you know are, are we really measuring these things properly are we really assessing these questions properly um in some cases yes in some cases no but that that's actually the answer right but there, the, you, you can't just have this kind of blanket blanket assertion um and that's just one example because it's one that that is, is, is kind of like deeply embedded in our societal consciousness somehow, right? Well, I think there are lots of those messages. You know, the behavioral economists have been exploring all of this for the last 10 or 20 years uh, about how people make it, uh, economic choices that are not rational, but are context dependent and based on subliminal and other factors that they don't, people don't necessarily recognize when they're making the decisions, but are still coming, are still in play and they do this by doing experiments on people where they change one factor of the context at a time and see how it affects people's choices and, and this is kind of interesting 
from lay perspective and sells lots of lay books in the New York Times bestseller list. But it also suggests that people are not very rational in their life choices on a, in a day-to-day basis. And because of that, and because of this emotional subconscious, subconscious uh, involvement, that factors that can get into our subconscious can affect how we make choices. And, and those choices extend to how we even think about things. And I think that from my point of view, what I've been reading about lately is that our whole political domain, not just our biological thing, our medical and public health things that have been the most critical issues of the last three years because of the pandemic, but our political domain has also been invaded by this propaganda and maybe for a lot longer than just the last three years of the pandemic. Well, and, and, you know, perhaps even more disturbingly, and of course, you know, as I said, this has kind of been my obsession lately, we've kind of, and I, I suspect this is from the time of Bernays when he wrote that's this seminal work, Propaganda, um, we've just kind of accepted that it's perfectly reasonable and ethical to propagandize people, whether it's as, you know, for to, to sell some kind of cereal or to, um, elicit particular, you know, public health behavior, behaviors ostensibly for the greater good, uh, public health. It just, it just, it's, it's like we've sort of ended up in this arms race of influence, uh, where everybody just knows that everybody else is using these tools and this is just how you do things. And it, you know, it's almost like completely negating the, the, the agency that, you know, the obvious, the importance of people's own agency in making their decisions, right? Or, or just kind of negating that. If you're part of that ecosystem that that is designed to, you know, get particular behavioral responses, whether it's for financial gain or political gain or whatever it is, treating people like automatons to be used. And I and I wonder how much this doesn't sort of play into this kind of authoritarian mindset, authoritarian moment that we're in where there's a lot of people thinking about, you know, for the, for the greater good, we, I think we need to restrict free speech because it's, it's, it's all for the greater good. Right. And, you know, there's all, there's all sorts of, you know, similar um, assertions being made, all sorts of rules ready to be broken for, for, for the so-called greater good, which is frankly, what every, but, you know, what two bit budding despot is going to say every time. Right. Right. Well, so this is a very libertarian kind of idea, saying that it's each person's responsibility to figure out, you know, the wheat from the chaff, the propaganda from the reality, and take responsibility for their own uh, consumption of of information and, and, and acting upon that information, as if people are able to do that in their conscious mind when the messages are being broadcast on subconscious channels because that's what propaganda is and i think that that uh, i don't share those that libertarian framework but on the other hand i do think there's some merit to say that people need to be trained to be suspicious and critical of other people's motives that especially in the commercial economic sphere that everybody is selling all the time because that's the competitive nature of human life that we the world is competitive because there are more of us and we aspire to higher standards of living which um 
you know, means that we are economically competing against each other in general terms. And that competition means anybody who gets an advantage for in whatever way succeeds better than a person who doesn't. And that if that advantage comes by tricking people through subconscious messaging, then that that works for the perpetrators. And so either you have a moral code that prevents that, or you have a legal code that prevents that, or you have an educational system that trains people not to be susceptible to it. Oh, and 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 that's just the thing. Like we, we're 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 in this kind of brave new world. And and the, and the other part that that is, I kind of alluded to, to this a little bit earlier. But this is what is so troubling that some of us, it turns out. I mean, this is my observation. I don't have the 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 the, the studies, you know, to show this. But but actually, this this ratio kind of keeps coming up in in different contexts. Um, uh, uh but some maybe 10, 20% of us are just incredibly susceptible to being manipulated by, um, you know, let's, let's, you know, this, these powerful, when, when, when the entire um, legacy media ecosystem, plus some social media, plus some, you know, friends, plus, I, I, I don't know exactly how it works. I call this sort of structure, the megaphone. It's this mechanism uh, that, 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 manufacturers perceived consensus in society that's my other observation that we're 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 particularly susceptible when we think most of society believes something or thinks a particular way right that that we think oh well that's probably right <laughs> i mean i call, I I call I, that I, the I, mars treatment you know when, when you go to the store and the sales clerk looks at you and says you're the only person who's ever said that in my entire life <laughs> you're from mars well 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 so what but that that's actually interesting because again uh, one of the things that that you know one of the what was one of the biggest punishments that you could get in the ancient world right aside from obviously death was at being ostracized right and i and frankly and myself i never really thought about that um like why why I, actually i did think about it and i thought that seems like a underwhelming somehow underwhelming a punishment right to ostracize somebody but actually it turns out no. It's actually there's the, the fear of being cast out from your group. I think is an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing, and 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 me, you know, probably was incredibly effective at, you know, as as a as a way to get you know slow people down from doing really bad things. The knowledge that that would happen that that would happen to you. I think we're I think we're very very susceptible to that, um, to to being. Um, to being, to to not wanting to be on the wrong side of you know the societal so-called societal consensus, the perceived consensus, lest we be ostracized, lest as we be cast out. That's also probably the mechanism that prevents us from speaking truth when you know the the lie is in the air and we you just kind of don't want to say anything because if you do, you know someone might bite your head off and you'll be exposed as being the the, the heretic or something. <laughs> well, having been there, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong twenty percent. But well, well. So, so exactly. So, so here's the thing. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking back to okay. There's a. There's a. I'm remembering an interview um, by Al, with Aldous Huxley. I think you know one of these sort of later interviews with him, where he talks about something like twenty percent of the population is very easy to hypnotize. Another twenty percent is impossible, and then there's a middle that's kind of, you know, might, might be, might not be. And then I think of Wobachevsky's, uh, you know, political and political panorology, 
where he's uh, uh, he's describes the situation. He's at the Jagiellonian University after uh, the end of World War II. The Soviet, essentially, the communists are in the process of taking over. There's been this sort of short time where there's been relative freedom. The communists are taking over. He's in a psych- he's a psychology major, and uh, uh, and this guy comes in to, that replaces his professor who's some kind of communist apparatchik who he says has no business being in education of any sort. And he's in obviously a totalitarian authoritarian sort demands compliance. And it just kind of changes the whole structure of the class. Right. And he, and he's looking at the situation. And again, we see the same ratio. He sees there's, there's, there's 20% of the people who are shocked and aghast and are, you know, able to show that at, at some level there's there's another 20% which somehow just get behind these the insane ideas which this guy is spouting as if nothing had happened right and then there's the middle which is just kind of wants to be you know avoid <laughs> being called out at it you know at, at, at any cost i mean this is this is me of course you know embellishing a little bit for meeting but but you know this he he, he this this kind of situation comes up so it's not the point is we're not equally susceptible right we're not equally susceptible. And there's, and, and in some cases, and I've heard this case also made that people that are, you know, high IQ, high information in many cases can be more susceptible because of that, because they somehow believe that they're immune to it because of their high information. Right. Well, actually, I think it's worse than that, but you know, we're getting to a a commercial break. So why don't we take a pause here and um, we'll be right back very soon. So uh, listeners, please stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Jan Utilik. So we were just discussing the splits in acceptance of, I don't know, social values between believers, disbelievers, and not sure people in the middle that seems to have been observed in parallel in, in a number of different settings. Uh, Sharansky also says this in his experience of dissidents in the Soviet Union, that 30% went along with and tried to be 
uh, involved in the the communist government society and and so on. Thirty percent were the the dissidents who basically hid their dissidents and, and published their typewriter based uh, samizdat manuscripts that spread over the country. And then the middle 40% were the people who just kind of did what they could to get by without taking a stand one direction or the other. I, I think this is a very universal thing under psychological distress. And, and that, um, I forgot who said it, that, that, that intellectuals are the easiest persons to, to fool. They, they, they take, they, they believe in theories that you know you go through college and university and you get fed a whole bunch of theories and you start to believe them and you fill up your brain with theories and all the common sense falls out <laughs> that for me i ended up being an epidemiologist because as much as i love theories i don't believe any of them i love lab theories biology theories i love all that it's intellectually stimulating and interesting but i don't believe any of it until i've actually confirmed it with empirical data in actual people and that's what my tools and skills tell me is how you manage knowledge in general about science that that and maybe about life even more that that we all have theories about almost everything and we and we hardly ever confirm those theories because we don't have the time and the expertise to be able to go out and do that for much of life so we trust other people who claim to expertise to having done that you know we believe that driving cars is safe we we drive cars under the theory that it's safe and all i have to do is try to be a good driver and um i can rely on that from for my daily life choices which is an empirical theory that's testable and we know how many fatal accidents there are in the united states and how many miles driven and you can calculate risk per mile driven and things like that in different circumstances and so you could get an idea as to the quantitative na nature of how safe things are but we still have a theory that's that says we pretend that they're 100% safe because if we thought that the risk was substantial we probably wouldn't do it you know just like we probably wouldn't fly on airplanes if we thought the risk of that was unsafe or we probably wouldn't go into crowded movie theaters when there was a pandemic because we thought the risk was unsafe but those are things that we trust others to tell us because we ourselves haven't measured all of those things at best, we read what others purport to say is objective information on their measurements and try to make sense of a whole field or discipline or, or knowledge base on a particular subject. Well, Harvey, what this makes me think of is, um, well, let, let's put it this way. If there's ever been, we, we've been taught, you know, increasingly that the world is very complex um, in fact, way too complex to figure out ourselves. We need some kind of, you know, sort of mediation class group, the experts, the people that will help us navigate this very complex reality. Um, this is, uh, uh, you know, and whether, and that is manifested in actually in very different ways. Um, you know, for example, in, in government, you have, you know, the, the, the growth of the administrative state and making, you know, decisions on behalf of the elected officials, because presumably people are experts, right? But what we saw uh, uh, throughout the pandemic, if anything, was perhaps the greatest. Uh, uh, we we had we we were we we tested the hypothesis that that expert rule is is a good idea under difficult circumstances. And if there's ever been, you know, a more abject failure, I I actually can't think of one. 
right? Like, I mean, we, we I think we we thoroughly understand right now that we cannot outsource our, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, future to experts to figure things out because they can get things catastrophically wrong. And then often when they do, they'll just, they, they'll double down on the mistakes instead of actually correcting course, which one would hope would be the case. Well, that's because um, we didn't have objective experts. We had conflict of interest experts who had reasons to make um, non-optimal choices based on their conflicts. And there was a whole understructure beneath the surface of the apparent political, the public health decisions that were made that was driving what those experts did and, and said and how they used empirical information to, you know, cherry-picked and biased what they took out of the empirical information to make the, the claims that they did and how this was all either fraudulent science, what I call science product, you know, it looks like science, but isn't, uh, that, that went on throughout the pandemic and probably predates it for quite a while also, that our experts didn't work as experts. What they worked at is as technical knowledgeably people but experts implies a degree of objectivity and judgment uh you know that and self-correction that makes somebody a professional a, a person who's a hack who can who can do a technical job but does a crummy job because they have a bias for example a, a surgeon who always wants to do his pet surgery because he's got a high profit margin on it in spite of the fact that it might not be the best for a particular patient that's still an expert, but it's not the kind of expert that I talk about. It's not a professional person. It's a hack. And so what we have is that we can't tell the difference between hacks and professional experts on paper. And we've hired a whole class of people with technical expertise, and we can't tell whether they're hacks or experts. Well, and so, you know, this, that, that's very, that's a very, very interesting uh, way to, way to put it. I'm going to think about that. Hacks are experts. <laughs> you know, it it puts us in a very difficult difficult situation, you know. And this, you know, I, I as you were speaking, I couldn't help but think about how this applies to media, because this is, you know, I, I think you know, going back to twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, uh, I don't remember the exact moment, but I, no, I I remember the exact moment. I just don't remember when it was. But you know, as a media, we were at the Epoch Times, we were on many issues, I think a lot more similar to the legacy media, uh, what you would call legacy media. But that around that time, something changed. And what, what, what I was observing was, you know, I had been studying China and uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party for years, you know, in different ways from, I, I was involved in human rights, as you alluded to uh, earlier. Um, and so forth. And, and just I've been watching how their propaganda organs function to to frankly demonize people, right, and to, to kind of shift public opinion and so forth. And my observation at that time was this was when uh, the, the Trump candidacy was happening. Trump, you know, so-called came down the escalator and and now he was and then he became he was becoming increasingly a, a viable candidate and so forth. And at some there, there was this shift and these the media basically started functioning in unison and I could predict I mean I actually played games with people I could predict the headline roughly you know um 
and it would be the same one across the board and the same talking points. And it, it, it was an astonishing thing because it really looked to me what I, what I, like what I had seen in China, which where these media were actually highly centralized um, and run through Xinhua, the actual, you know, I, I don't think it's called that now, but it was called the propaganda agency. I think they renamed it to PR or something. <laughs> I can't remember. But, um, but anyway, no, it, it was, it was astonishing and, and, and horrifying. And, you know, it also, marked the place where you know there was a significant divergence from how how we were reporting on it's that issue of course we had always been reporting differently on china china for whatever reason had been for many reasons had been extremely poor among these media for years because of by the way because of perverse incentive structures in no small part which is something you alluded to to these you know hacks versus experts so to speak but um but in in media if if the experts, i.e., people, let's you know the people who are, uh, I'm assuming you know truth-seeking, supposed to be truth-seeking journalists, or we assume to be truth-seeking journalists, trying to get at what is really going on and share that information as best they can, you know, mitigate their biases because we all have them. When that changes to you know looking for a very particular outcome uh, or a particular viewpoint to be adopted, and you know, basically massaging everything they're doing to achieve that outcome i.e i don't know trump will never win trump will that that was that was that was the example um ben uh, or just is a bad person or whatever else um it, it completely changes it completely changes the equation right and then so some people realize this and we're thinking my god what is going on this is crazy and then some people going back to our ratios just accepted what they heard without that critical, for whatever reason, they have that susceptibility, right? Without, and so it, it just kind of highlights to me how societal, I don't know, trust or institutional trust is such a, like, I don't wanna say, I don't wanna say sacred thing, but something just incredibly important, incredibly difficult to, to, to kind of earn, I guess, and then when it's broken, it's I don't even know how you get back to 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 fixing that when people start realizing that you're lying to them. Right? So I think what happened was that society let a playbook operationalize that started off with saying there's no such thing as truth. There's your truth and my truth. And then that moved into the journalism school context, which said that you have your truths and you might as well merge opinion with reporting and therefore advocacy journalism is your highest goal, not truth reporting. Because truth reporting is an abstract concept and we have bigger fish, fish to fry than just finding out what's the truth of nature about human behavior in society. We have more important goals than that and you are agents of those more important goals. And that, and it's your job and role to promote your agency in advocacy reporting. And that's what they did. They turned the journalism schools in, into political schools and largely in one direction. And so the, the law, it would be like, there are no scientists left in the United States. All the scientists are only interested in finding out how to um convert lead into gold and and so they all they all make these these the the fake truth that that 
lead is actually gold and convince everybody that lead is gold. And that that's their scientific advocacy. And it's kind of absurd to think about that because there is a higher truth for human life. And that is knowing about the way nature works, including the nature of how humans interact with each other and what we believe and why we believe it and how we operationalize our beliefs and our values. And all of that is still studyable as scientific facts that has an absolute truth to those facts. And no amount of propaganda saying your truth versus my truth is going to dislodge the idea that there are observable facts in the universe about how the way nature works. And if we lose that goal, then all we have is the entire world that why use metric bolts when you can use something else on your car? Well, they don't fit. Well, too bad. It's our job to use the other things. You know, it's you're just not going to accomplish your positive, beneficial, wholesome, humane evolution of human life by corrupting the facts on which knowledge of life is based. No, I, 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 Harvey, I, of course, I agree with you. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about how when you include this, you know, social constructivist vision of the world, right? This post postmodernist vision of the world, you, and you tie it into this idea that, you know, human beings are, that it's, you know, perfectly moral and legitimate to, to propagandize people, you know, in whatever direction is the, you know, the right politically let's say, you know, direction or for, for whatever, you know, whatever so-called benevolent reason you have, you, you just get this kind of mess <laughs> that, right. that, 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 that we're in, we're in today. And the, the crazy thing about, so we, this, I, we first saw this, uh, this weird behavior. I mean, this, I remember talking with some of our editors back in 2015, 2016 about this, but we've kind of discovered, I don't know if it would be discovered or things have really just changed so quickly. I mean, it's a combination of both actually, but it's almost in every area of endeavor. And this is, this is, it's, it's really, this is astonishing. If, if anything is astonishing, right. In every area of endeavor, whether it's, you know, medicine, whether it's, um, you know, sex, sexuality, whether it's, um, uh, uh, I don't know, law at, in every single area almost of of endeavor we're kind of we face the same kind of crisis and that's that's what i find so bizarre like a crisis of you know truth versus ideology or truth versus propaganda or um and and it would i think it would be okay to it would be possible to deal with if you could discuss if you discuss things on an even playing field of the same set of, of the same facts of the basically the of the facts right it, it's just it gets back to this issue that i started at the beginning with at the beginning that there's some portion of the population that is somehow either un, unable or unwilling to to explore that right it's like they already and 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 i and i don't know how that works exactly and how do you and how do you um, how do you change things? Okay, so let, let, let me let me add one more thing here. An, a, a very curious observation. Okay, we've been there's this disaster at the border. You know, the border has been you know 
that let's say highly permeable for a long time to the point of, you know, seven, I think it's 7 million people have come across it now over the past few years. I, I, I believe that's the number um, that, that weren't supposed to. Um, recently, there's been a shift in the perception of this whole situation. And, you know, you, you, perhaps you could argue it's because of this policy of some of the um, governors from the border states in Florida sending the people that are coming across the border, many of them to the so-called sanctuary cities, where which are you know all about welcoming uh, people that are illegal immigrants and so forth. Um, and but in New York and in in many other places now, there's this kind of shift where people are starting to say, "Hey, wait a sec, this isn't working." Perhaps because they're faced with the consequences of their bad ideas. And so this, so, you know, and there's even talk of actually building a wall at the border by the Biden administration. <laughs> I mean, no, it, it, I mean, it, it's, a, it's astonishing, right? But something, okay, something has suddenly shifted. There's been some sort of tipping point was reached recently where people that were, you know, incredibly committed to whatever that policy was. I don't know, people don't like saying, you say open border policy, but that policy which facilitated seven odd million people coming across the border over how many years, however many years, right? A, a very short period of time. Um, that's- well, This gets to an imp important consideration, but we have to take a break. So let's do that and we'll be back shortly and then we'll continue. Everybody, please stay tuned. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Hari Rish with Mr. Yanya Killick. So we were just talking about when policies 
that seem, for at least to a segment of the population, reasonable things, only start to be reconsidered when the people are faced with the ill consequences of the policies and directly in, in front of them in their own experience, practically. And the example was the 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 illegal crossing, the magnitude of the illegal crossings of the southern U.S. border and sending uh, those migrants to sanctuary cities where the people in those in those cities now feel overloaded by the care and, and, and support responsibilities of these people with no place to go and no jobs to do and, and no place to live and, and hanging out everywhere in public and all of that experience that's making them realize that this might not have been the greatest decision. And then the political establishment seeing that if people are waking up to this and they better start doing something about it because their political uh, uh, support is, could wane in the next election if they don't. I, I think you're right. I think that um, it's harder to make good decisions in the abstract unless you're an intellectual and you really have experience than it is to make good decisions in the practical where you can observe in real time the effects of those decisions. It's a... Uh... It's a strange, strange situation. And this is so, I've also been thinking a lot lately about tipping points. That's why I've been kind of very curious about this one when it comes to border issues. Because by the way, I just want to mention that the cost of it has been, you know, surges in human trafficking, fentanyl deaths. I mean, you know, I, someone said, you know, the population of Wisconsin being added to the US, right? I, I think I've heard that as a statistic, I don't know if that's right. But uh, um, without, uh, you know, assimilationist policy to help people integrate, right? Which, of course, creates uh, social chaos, right? Um, At least for a time. Uh, the integration will happen for most of those the people eventually if they, if they find stable circumstances. Well, so I, I had one of my guests on, on American Thought Leaders. We were actually, we were discussing this exact point that, that uh, as, as, since the large majority of the people that are coming across the South from the South are uh, Hispanic or, you know, from, from basically a Judeo-Christian tradition that facilitates that integration a lot more than in places like in France, where they've had huge, you know, influx of people with a very, very different tradition. And that's creating a level, a much greater level of social chaos. That was very interesting uh, uh, perspective. So I think, I think you might be right about that, but, but let, let, going back to this idea of tipping points, um, Years ago, I uh, um, I had not years ago, but a couple of years ago, I had been talking to one of the solidarity uh, leaders from the Polish Solidarity Movement uh, back in the day, and she mentioned to me, and I hadn't known this, that that it was over about a two month, one to two month period in two, I believe it was 1983, that the Solidarity Trade Union. This is, of course, you know, under martial law now, right? Um, the, 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 the famous uh, uh, priest named Popiewuszko, who was very, you know, sort of standing up to the regime, had been murdered by the, the secret police. Um, a few other things happened, but suddenly that, that Solidarity Trade Union grew from about 2 million people to 10 million people in the course of a month or two. I mean, out of a population of about 30 million in the country, something like that. Right, exactly. So exactly. Suddenly, you know, a third of the country became act, you know, in name, solidarity, they said, I, okay, I'm, and what, what did, what did this signify? Well, to me, 
you know, thinking about it now, I remember thinking about that back then. It was, it was very interesting uh, phenomenon. And thinking about it now, I think that that was the moment when the Polish communist regime ended, actually. I think that's that's what did it. And and what made me think of that actually was I had someone had sent me an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson that I think he had done it in the Telegraph, and he had been asked, "What is the who rules in a totalitarian regime?" And this this was actually running in a tab out of one out of fifty tabs. I couldn't find it. I was rushing to try to turn it off. You know, I was working on something else, but I heard him say, "The lie rules. Who rules in a totalitarian regime? Of uh, the lie rules. Oh, that's interesting." And it, that just stuck with me, and it you know connected with this with this idea that that at that moment in 1983, a huge number of people somehow decided to give up the lie. The lie was, well, that we're going to accept all this insanity from our from our communist rulers and all the falsehoods that you have to live under and everything else. This is you know this is the nature of every communist regime, right? That you right. have to accept all sorts of falsehoods as fact and live as if you know, uh, and not and not not contradict them too loudly, right? In in many cases, you know, as in the greengrocer example, you kind of indicate your support, even though you don't. It's not it's not you know maybe very strong, um, yeah. And so people said, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to live the lie anymore. And I think it was just another six years or odd years that it took to figure out how to wrap it up, how to move on from this calamity, you know, which, which every, you know, the system imposes uh, uh, every time it's, it's, it's applied. But so, so tipping points, right? What was it? They didn't have mass communication. There was, there was, you know, the, of course, the few TV channels were, were, were pure propaganda, uh, you could be on the phone, but on the phones, you know, you couldn't, uh, uh, everything was tapped, of course, as well. You never knew when someone was listening. It wasn't as bad as uh, as it, it crossed the border in East Germany, but it was it was up there. And, but somehow through word or thou, through, of course, the Samizdat, or we, what we call in Polish Bibuwa, uh, played, a, played a big role. Um, but somehow it just suddenly, boom, tipping point reached, regime is over, if you accept my assertions here. Right. Now, so that's there was a critical mass that that the first person to stand up takes courage. The second person to stand up only takes the first person. That um, once you see that there are others out there and they're still alive and they're still doing what the the right thing is that you think is the right thing, it allows this to accelerate and grow exponentially. That it provides safe haven for people to come out of the woodwork and say what they believed anyway in the first place, but were felt unable or unsafe to do. And, and I think that it's a critical mass that has to start and, and and manage to somehow be out there and be public about it. And if the, and so they managed to have some kind way of communicating with each other in order to be public, at least in that segment of the population. Well, and I mean, this, this, this is what's, this is what I find most interesting. I don't know how that worked and no one can really give me a clear answer at this point. I haven't, not that I've tried terribly hard to figure it out either yet, but I will be. Um, there, there's different things which are candidates for, uh, for, you know, helping achieve this tipping point. You know, one of them is a terrible thing. Um, it's the, just the reality that the, the harms associated with these, COVID-19 genetic vaccines are greater uh, than they were supposed to be. 
And, you know, some surveys are even saying that almost everyone believes they know someone who's been harmed in a serious way. I think, you know, Fryman et al., I remember that study, one in 800, uh, a ser- with a serious, very serious outcome, or is it death even? I can't remember uh, right now. Uh, um, it's one of um, the, the originally described serious outcomes. They had a list of the right. ones that they put together. But but that's that's very high, right, for any... For any, I mean, I think there were all sorts of vaccines. Well, for healthy were, people to take, yes. For sick people, but for healthy people, like for a right. vaccine, yes. Right. I mean, but, but what I'm saying is there were vaccines that were pulled, which with much, uh, uh, you know. Much smaller adverse re- reactions. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. So anyway, but so the point is there's been this, and yet the, the public messaging has been, you know, at this point, we've got this bivalent, you know, booster, which is as far as I can tell, you know, talking to, uh, you know, Joe Latipo over in Florida, you know, as, as, as the Surgeon General over there just, you know, simply has not, has not uh, gone through the testing. And, you know, we know that I'm just mentioning him because he he's putting where his money where his mouth is for his whole state on, on this issue, yet where it's being recommended to six months old, olds and up, right, which, you know, never would need such a thing. Um, and, and yet, so that the, and, People that are, of course, the, the the pickup isn't very high because, again, I would argue of the same knowledge that's collectively in the society that, you know, these things are, are not something that, that that you should really take these days, you know. Right. There's COVID fatigue. All. Everybody's had COVID. So many people more than once. And and people basically thought, I've gotten through this. And even if I get COVID, it's going to be minor and an, an annoyance and not the threat that we were propagandized at the beginning to think that 4% of people would die, you know, right. it's way down there like flu and, or even less these days. And right. so why should I worry about it? Well, and so, so the thing is that, is this the thing that, you know, it takes us over the tipping point because there's been tragically enough people, you know, one in 800, that's, that's a lot of people. Right. If you vaccinate um, 300 million people, one in 800 is a huge number. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, is that is that what will help us get to a tipping point where we um, where, where, where we can say, change society in a constructive way, I guess. That's what I'm saying, because that's what happened in Poland. Right. I mean, it was messy. Some pe- people complain about what happened. Um you know, uh, uh, there's still there's still debates today. Half the country it, it thinks you know that it was done poorly. The transition was done poorly. It's a long story. The, the the point being that that society was changed in a very constructive way after this tipping point was reached. When, for whatever reason, a big chunk of society pretty quickly decided, I'm not going to live the lie anymore, or I'm not going to accept. I'm not going to accept the lie. Not necessarily live, but but accept it. I'm just going to publicly say no. So I think if right. there were lockdowns here, people would say, I'm not doing it. Um, you know, I, um, Baylor has now instituted a, a vaccine booster mandate on its students and staff. And I think people in Texas are very upset about this. And the the government there, the, 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 rep- the Senate passed a, a no mandate vote, a no, a no vax mandate uh, vote. The House of Representatives was scheduled to do this, and one member of of the House pushed it off the calendar by putting it last among things that would never be gotten to on the last day uh, of their 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 meeting, and so it never got passed. And I think people are are very upset. Governors upset. 
and the people of Texas are, are pretty upset over this, that they think this is, you know, overkill, so to speak, and and unnecessary and totalitarian. And um, and and it remains to be seen how that's going to manifest in behaviors and decisions that people take. But it's not going away for whatever reasons and why you know, universities would continue to make these absurd mandates now in the current context, as opposed to in early 2021, when they were freaked out, when we're not freaked out today, and, and COVID is an endemic, low-level annoyance for almost everybody. It, it just, uh, uh, I just, I don't know why they would make that decision other than some real corruption within the university. Or it's this, you know, human, you know, human reality that we just, we, we double down on our mistakes. I mean, I, I, I think that's part of it because after all, you know, when I, if we go back to the, if we believe, except that Polish example, it did take six years. If that was the moment where, you know, the shift had really happened, it still took a while to sort it out. You know, there's still people that were, you know, the martial law lasted. There were still people arrested and killed. There were, you know, and, and you know, but, but kind of a good path was eventually found through it. Um, but we, we live in, we live in this society right now where we're asked to accept all sorts of lies, uh, you know, uh, on the face of it. Um, Here that, in the in U.S., that sense, that's right. In, that's in, right. In, 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 that, in that sense, it's analogous. It's not analogous in the sense that, um, there isn't this, uh, you know, jackboot, uh, you know, two people are concerned, of course, and that, that some of our agencies are what here in the U S are weaponized. They're, they're basically going after people. They shouldn't, there's certain, you know, stark examples of that, that where, where the system has been terrible towards people, uh, and, you know, way overreaching way being incredibly, uh, uh, exerting terrible punishments for things that, 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 that that were not didn't that didn't deserve that level of punishment. So, but so there is a little bit of that, but but it, it's all very kind of soft <laughs> in comparison to mm -hmm. to what was happening in Poland back in the day. I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but but what is the same is this lie, is is the 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 sort of the the, the need to publicly at least accept uh, the all, all sorts of preposterous things, right? Yes, right. Well, yes. I mean we kind of do it for convenience to a little degree normally in human life, but it's so out of hand and consequential for all of the things that have happened in the, in the last three years and, and the factors as to why that occurred, which we still don't have a good handle of except for intrigue at the highest levels of our security state. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I do think that we, we, I think, you know, the insights of people like Matthias Desmet and, and a few others that I've been thinking about. I mean, his his thinking in the psychology of totalitarianism really influenced me quite profoundly because there's a, you know, it's like at some level we agree to it too, right? And this this is the point. This is the point, right? Like what at some level there's this sort of imp impetus of of you know accepting authority to being too accepting of authority right well it, i think it, desmond's it, idea is that at least to be charitable to his ideas that if you that 
propaganda inserts the seeds that grow in the community, the, the intellectual, you know, informational seeds of propaganda that people take on and amplify and freak out about in their communities. So the endogenous generation of, of these uh, lies or, or, or panics that um, I'm not sure I, that I agree with that they're endo largely endogenous. I think that they have propaganda origins that insert them into some people who ramp them up, amplify them, and, and it's contagious in their communities. And right. that's how these things occur. Right. Well, and so so that this tipping point happens when, you know, people say no, <laughs> or at least some portion of people say no, or, or somehow are able to shake themselves of that, um, you know, weird ideological virus, you know, my, I think Elon Musk calls it a mind virus, right? That's kind of caught hold of them. Well, he's, um, that's the whole point that, that, that the, the ideas are contagious. The, these bad and wrong ideas are contagious because of people's fear. If you first pr propagandize fear, then people are much more susceptible to accepting false ideas. And also, so you, so if you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you get them over their fear, then they're much more amenable to reconsidering the ideas. Well, and so so here's the thing, right? Is for example the fact that you you realize that you know your your relative or friend has been terribly harmed, you know, by by a product which was you know which was we were told was perfectly safe again and again and again and again, and we the shock of that. The realization of that and of, of enough people sort of coming to terms with that is that enough to to shake to to kind of open up the mind so to speak well right, right. so you're saying all that anger can work just as well as a uh, loss of fear to well to, or or to or just or just the realization that that you just the realization that that something you thought was true isn't Right. Like, so yeah. I think that like it's a shock to the system sometimes. Right. I mean, I, I faced that a few times in my life um, yeah. and, and people do. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. We've run out of time, so we'll have to continue on. I hope in another occasion, um, I hope that our, our listeners have enjoyed the discussion. And if, you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Well, Jan, thank you really very much for having this conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening. And please come back again next week. Thanks so much, Harvey.